Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Join in on a great conversation today with some of the world's great influencers as they showcase great advice and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome. Thanks for joining in with us. Now, I like to think that you're like me. I've made so many mistakes, but yet each time I learn so much. And I usually don't try to make the same mistake later on. I don't try. And I guess that means I'm getting smarter. Well, while mistakes and learning from them has something to do with it, we're going to go much deeper in today's episode. How would you like to get smarter every year and get deeper regarding a core subject that can change the world? We're going to talk about Let's Get Smarter with Carol Sanford. And while we're at it, this is all about helping you and your friends turn your vision into reality. We want to help you get very successful at growing your business to a high sustainable level. Let's meet Carol Sanford. She's a contrarian, counterintuitive change theory with an extraordinary track record. Get this. She's been a DuPont CEO, Google EVP, Numi T CEO founder, and I love that T by the way. She does, she yeah. didn't know that. And the list goes on. She's got six best selling books, and I think that says it all. So let's get into it. Hi, Carol. Welcome to the Tony D'Urso show. Thank you, Tony. I always love uh, chatting with you about any subject. Thank you. The honor is mine. And also, just so uh, everyone knows, I've interviewed Carol, I believe it was on Revenue Chat Radio. Soon after I started, I'm sure I made a few mistakes then, and I'm so glad that she uh, she still thinks nice of me to come back on the show. So I am honored. Little Italian tease there, Carol. For today's episode, I think I've piqued a lot of people's interest about growing our business through getting smarter. So yeah. let's kind of uh, jump into it here. Perhaps let's start here. How did it all start for you? What's your backstory? Tony, I think it starts with two different influences. And when I was very young, my father, who was not a nice human being, as opposed to me, uh, who had very racist views, poor quality uh, ideas about how the world worked, and was kind of a mean man. And so I tried, I kept thinking I should follow my father, but I had a grandfather on my maternal side who was half Mohawk and had been raised on a, a Native American reservation in his first 12 years. Now, if you have to think about two ears, and you've got one of them in one ear and one in the other ear, that's in some ways the best of all worlds because you can see so radically the difference. And I, as a very young child, started trying to figure out why my father thought the way he did, it didn't make sense to me. Uh, I had a lot of young friends, farm workers, kids who I played with, and they were my friends. But to my father, they were a detriment to the nation, to the economy, uh, to what we stood for as a country. And I was, he did everything he could to break my spirit to believe like he did. And when I argued with him, which I did regularly, I got punished by being put in a closet for a long period of time. Um, 
Now, that sounds terrible, and I assure you part of it is because I'm terribly claustrophobic still, but it gives you a lot of time to think. And I was five or six years old when the heart of this time was happening, but I also got out of the closet and then usually spent a part of many days with my grandfather, who would encourage me not to hate him, not to feel uh, like I had to listen to everything he said, to have my own mind. And he would walk me through mostly with what we probably now would call a Socratic method. But it was more the indigenous way that young men were brought up, that my grandfather had been brought up, which was to think for yourself and to think for yourself in a system and to think about other people as growing and evolving and becoming something as you were. And that your job was not to make either of them wrong, your father or the the uh, friends and others you knew, but to ask what made sense, to really learn how to think about it. So I had these stark contrasts of how to think about something. On the one hand, answers given, which I was expected to adopt, and I would be punished for not doing so. On the other hand, I had my grandfather who encouraged me never to adopt anyone else's ideas, never to assume that the answers were fixed and that we could know the ultimate answer and then we were smart. And I had one asking me questions and one offering me answers that were already pre-digested. Now, if you're five or six years old, if what's happening to you at that age is you're starting to see yourself as going to become an adult like all these other people around. And I began at a very young age questioning what kind of adult did I want to be? And I think that's probably um, the, the most important part of the founding. There are a couple of stories along the way, but we'll get to those. Very interesting, and I'm thinking. Okay, you're very intuitive. You're 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 starting to think outside of the box as a child, and I think a, a lot of us resonate. I resonate. I had similar thoughts, but I never thought of making a business out of it. Making <laughs> making a journey, a whole life, whatever you want to call it, a life event out of writing books and teaching people how to 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 learn, to think, to grow. So how did that vision evolve yeah. into what you're doing now? It's one of my very favorite life experiences. When I went to college, uh, I went to um, UC Berkeley. Now, it's kind of known as a pretty radical school, and it really was in my heyday. Uh, I was blessed with uh, several things that were happening, two of which matter to where we're going. One was I studied uh, Socrates and pre-Socratic philosophy because I was very interested still in trying to understand where ideas came from. The other thing was that the year I was on campus, uh, there was a man named Thomas Kuhn working as a, I think they called him a visiting scholar. And I sat in on his classes that he wrote a book called The Structure of the Scientific Revolution. It introduced into our vocabulary and our way of looking at change something called paradigm shift. So a paradigm meaning it kind of frames our worldview and how we see everything. And we can't tell we have one. But for example, 
I quickly could see so, so clearly that my father had one worldview and my grandfather had another as I listened to Kuhn talk. And that was the first time I'd had a name for what was going on. Uh, and one of the things that Kuhn did, he was a, he was a young man. He was pretty much my age, even at the same time. Uh, he um, put out uh, an invitation to anyone who was in his classroom to join him at something uh, what's called the Rat Skeller. It was kind of like the salons, like you know about Paris, where you go down the steps and you sit and you talk over beer kind of late at night after class. And Kuhn one day, he, he was always great with questions, but one day he posed the question to um, all of the maybe 20 or 25 students we had down there. And he said, Where did, what is your religion and how did you come by it? Now, it was a strange way to form it because most of us just think our religion is the religion. We got it from our parents. But Kuhn started questioning people. And we had in the room of Palestinians. Uh, we had um, people from Indonesia. We had he uh, Hebrews who came out of Russia. Uh, we had uh, atheists who were in the room. We had Christians of all form. I mean, with the 22, 25 of us, depending on which day you came, you could get 20 religions, right, and views. But the things that totally fascinated me was he kept saying, why do you believe that? So you got that from your parents or the country or, or the cleric who had your group or the church you grew up in, but why do you believe it? And almost no one could answer that question. He would probe and probe and probe. And I watched all this and I thought, ah, these are not things that uh, exist and you choose between. They get formed in us. They get formed by our experience, by the decisions we make. And he, uh, I, I asked him the question, or maybe someone else did, but I was, my question also was, uh, how do you have people switch paradigms? Because so that's clearly what he was trying to demonstrate. And he, he smiled so big and he said, well, my dear, and he did say, my dear, uh, that's your question to answer. I help you create and understand that. And I, at that moment, took that as a challenge to help people understand where they got their paradigms, how they came about, could they see them, can you change them? And if you do, how do you help things shift? And I suddenly wanted to help my father shift. He had been trying to change me the whole time I was really young. My grandfather never tried to change me. He tried to get me to see that I was forming and creating things in my own mind that created an interpretation. But I wanted my father to have that same gift. Uh, I never got to give it to him completely before he died. But I think that day I started forming. I had a question and a framework I created, which was rough. But 10 years later, this was my path, and I knew how I was going to take it on. We're talking about Let's Get Smarter with Carol Sanford, and you can find her at carolsanford.com. That's C-A-R-O-L. S-A-N-F-O-R-D.com. Carol, let's get into the vision path here and kind of jump into this. 
perhaps we should start by defining intelligence, maybe, and what does it really mean to get or to be smarter? I'm really interested in, in this, so so uh, let's kind of set this as the um, the ground floor. All right. If you grew up in a, getting a college education in the last um, 100 years, you grew up in a behavioral psychology definition of intelligence, which was based on the content you knew and the ability to use the tools you've been given. And you were given a score for that called an IQ, right? An intelligence quotient. Now, all of that was in a particular paradigm. And no one knew it. We didn't know. Uh, Thomas Kuhn hadn't been born. He hadn't written his book. He hadn't given it a name. Uh, but uh, I knew about the time I was in high school, for sure, because I started being subjected to this behavioral model, which gave me a test, uh, scored the test, told me where I was, and it happened to be when my uh, mother got a call at work and said, Carolyn, which was my full name, uh, has a problem uh, that we need to talk with you about. And my mother had some mental health problems, and so this was throwing her completely, but she tried Thank goodness she stayed very steady and listened. And they said, well, her tests, which we've given, show that she's slightly mentally retarded, the term used at that time. And my mother knew what that meant. She she had an image of you being put in an institution, of you failing in life, you know, never being able to be happy. Uh, and so instead of uh, completely collapsing, she uh, kept asking questions, and then they said the magic word. Well, we have uh, a set of solutions that we can put her in that will make her be a productive person in life. So th she, they were operating from one definition of intelligence, which was your ability to take a test on someone's predetermined idea about what the average person would know and how much more they would know and be able to manipulate tools if they uh, scored higher on the test. Now, that is a very narrow view of intelligence. Before that, and when the universities taught about intelligence, they taught it as ability to make sense of the world, to figure out how to influence and bring change in the world and to invent and have new ideas. And it was primarily degrees of philosophy everyone got, maybe philosophy of religion, philosophy of science. But uh, that definition of religion was more about the capacity to generate thinking, generate ideas, not learn them and take a test on them. Now, I define it as being able to manage how you think. So, if I ask you, you know, you're writing a book, and I said to you there are uh, three paradigms which are kind of at work in the world nowadays. And one of the things I'm be curious about, and you don't have to answer this, Tony, but I'm going to use you as an example, uh, is can you tell what paradigm you're thinking through and what the implications are of what you now hold is true? Can you look at another way to hold what you're thinking about and the implications of that. So, for example, if 
your belief is that you only are allowed to know things which an expert scientist does the uh, research and tells you the answer, uh, and you have the worldview of authoritative expert. It's the only place where knowledge comes from. Now, you have one view of how the world works, how the mind works, and I would claim that that particular view might radically limit what you can consider because you're only taking in other people's ideas. You're not testing them. You're not seeing if they work for you. Now, if I said, uh, think about um, people who are uh, not so much authorities, but they're people who experiment, who go look at what can you not test? What is happening that we can't put in a laboratory? Uh, and you write a book and you see the world that way, there's a question about uh, how your thinking is very different than the per person who only wants to take a test on somebody else's research. Now, if you are a living system science, we can give you a third one, uh, you might say, I'm going to look at how living systems work, how watersheds work, how humans and animals interact and plant life, and I'm going to develop all science, and I'm going to work with indigenous people and their indigenous science, and I'm going to bring all that in uh, as a way of seeing the world. Now, if I play with people with those three, they begin to see where they are and sometimes something they're missing and something that they explains to them why they hadn't been able to get an answer. So if you want to be able to truly define intelligence, you've got to be able to do what I just did, not have the answer to any of those, but know how you're thinking, know how you're learning, uh, not just what you know and whether you can do well on the test. That's a little complicated, but how did it fit as you thought about it? I'm thinking with this as we go along, Carolyn, I'm thinking, how do I take on such a radical different point of view to yeah. see how that would resolve or whatever? And here I am, and I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I've just kind of ground things here. I'm a businessman. I want to take, you know, my business from six digits to seven digits, you know, and I'm thinking, well, how do I take on this other viewpoint and what does that mean? And do I have to change my consciousness? Do I have to develop, redevelop that? You know, perhaps it's something that we, we remember as a child that we were able to change our viewpoint a lot easier and, and act or play the role a lot easier. And I used to see this as a child. Adults, uh, just from the child point of view, would never change. They would. Right. They 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 were a certain way, and that was it. They couldn't think of a different paradigm. They couldn't think of a different role or a different whatever, except for except for those that are actors, right? Because you you learn to think different. And I'm thinking some people don't want to think out of the box or get outside of their box. Though you didn't quite mention it that way. It's kind of how some of us think of it. And I'm going, well, how do we how do we even do that? And should we change our consciousness you, you kind of get what i'm what i'm saying so yeah. those are some of my thoughts as i'm kind of following along on this well let me give you uh, an instrument to use that i use with corporations and with uh, entrepreneurial uh, like numi t folks i teach them how to assess what they're thinking through now and I, I give them four paradigms, which I developed after meeting Thomas Kuhn over the following years. And I say, 
most entrepreneurs are operating at a fairly low level of entrepreneurship and paradigm. It's called extract value. You go get what you can. You try to get more than you put in. Uh, you want it all to take you to some level that you're ahead of the game. You're the top of your field. And mostly that's the kind of mindset that has you looking at everyone as what you can get from them, right? Now, that has uh, only so far it can take you because if you aren't creating some kind of reciprocity with at least customers, consumers, uh, and people see you as taking advantage of them, um, you're in, you're in trouble. And there are uh, probably 50% of the entrepreneurs on the planet they're still operating that way because they think that's what it means to be entrepreneurial. Um, the next level up is people who say, but there's more than me in the world. The next paradigm I call arrest disorder. And what that means is uh, I see the world needs something better. I think we need better ecological solutions, societal ones, uh, mix of what fairness means. And I want to have, help make a world that's fair. And I'm going to become, you pick a program, circular, sustainable, well-being, and something you put in that you feel like um, would get beyond the extract valley. And we could call that even the reciprocity level, right? So I have people play with that for a while. And they'll say, you know, in some areas, we are not thinking in a whole and complete way. We're very much into extract value. We act like the, the good things we're doing are separate from what we do every day. I want to move those together. So we play with it and then, and they did the discovery. I didn't come in and assess them and say, you bad people, you're all in extract value. I give them a way to define it. Now, there are two more levels. The third level is the do good or the humanist level where we say, I have been so blessed. Our company has been blessed. Uh, I've learned so much. Uh, I want to bring that into the world. And sometimes we take that into the world as an offering we sell. And sometimes we take it in as philanthropy where we want to give back or give something we think should be there. Uh, and what we end up doing, th this has more heart in it, but it also has more danger. Because when we get to the do good, we have to ask who defines good. So if you look, for example, uh, Bill Gates Foundation, which uh, does a lot of trying to do stuff for Africa, you now have many entrepreneurs and government officials who are rising up against the Gates Foundation. And they said, we don't agree with what you think we should do, right? you're projecting your do-good onto us. On the other hand, we appreciate that what you're trying to do. And then with the group I worked with, with Gates Foundation, they said, um, we need to create a better partnership. So their paradigm shift, right? But I didn't come and tell them. I got the conversation going about what are you hearing from your African uh, beneficiaries and from your group who's deciding what to do. We literally shifted perspective from that and designed a much better, uh, more whole way of working. 
But we have a fourth level. The fourth level says the world works as a, a unified system. There aren't just humans doing th- good things for themselves and others. There aren't just doing a less bad. And certainly we don't want everyone extracting value only. Um, if you think about what living systems mean, they believe that everything is unique. Everything is distinctive. This forest and that forest are not something unified generically, something called forest. You have to understand each distinctively and each person. You can't decide you know what's good for other people. You will learn to read the system, how it's working, how it's expressing itself, and you design for the customer based on where they're going for the uh, uh, the life shed, I call it, instead of a watershed. And you start to design from thinking about something that's alive and changing, nothing generic. So you no longer have generic ideas that you project on others. Now, the way I get people to work with them is I teach these four things and say, assess yourself. Talk about it. And do it specifically. Think about the programs you've designed. Think about how your company works when it's buying from suppliers. Think about, and we did this with a a Google group uh, who were buying particular materials because they met a certain criteria they wanted everyone to meet that have to do with um, the, the raw materials that were needed by Google. And when we did this assessment, they came back and they said, well, you know what? I realize, we realize now that we're trying to blanket layer a perfect solution we think we have on everyone else. We need to create a more dialogic process and understand what they would consider success. Now, that was a big shift for a huge company, and they made it on their own because they were self-assessing using my paradigm framework where they were and what the implications were. So that's how... You teach people a framework, have them apply their own actions, assess the implication, and they move. They switch what they're seeing. I'm really getting this into my brain, so to speak, just to be a little silly. And it has to do with, again, looking and realizing that there's something more there. And it has to do with something being be willing to change. And, and looking at these from different perspectives. So perhaps, and I know you have some of these, some strategies and some ideas on yeah. how we can uh, employ that to actually bring about that change or that change of viewpoint. I do, and I've written a few books about it. So thanks for the <laughs> question. Uh, so there are two levels, uh, and both of them fall under what I would call an education framework. None of them fall under consulting. I don't consult. I don't give advice. I don't give people programs. I don't give them competencies. I don't give them blue belts, green belts. I I don't do anything that I bring something and try and drive them toward doing it. It's all education. And I think I learned that from my grandfather particularly, but also Thomas Kuhn and a few other wonderful people along the way is don't try and sell me an answer. Give me capability to assess for myself. So there are two arenas that is important to do that in. Uh, 
the first one I just gave you an example of, you you learn frameworks that help you assess your doing and your working and your thinking and decide whether any of that's any good, what paradigm am I at, what uh, level of mind, and we can talk about that there are different minds we put to work. But the one that you're hinting at is the state of being of the person. If I am a static, stuck person, which a good percentage of the people in the world are for security reasons, for a reason they've had a rough life, and they become very protective, uh, very afraid of anything uh, disturbing them, losing their job, any number of things. Um, you have a very hard time getting people to move. But if you, you not only teach people to look at what they're doing is falling in line with on a paradigm, but what their state of being is doing. So I'm going to give you a quick framework I use to have CEOs, uh, entrepreneurs, and most of my work I run in groups now. I put uh, three or five entrepreneurs from a company in the room with 23 to 25 other uh, entrepreneurs. So they're watching each other, and that's very disruptive, and people can see themselves better not from being evaluated by others, but watching others. So here's the framework. I say, look at the last year of your organization. About what, and I'm going to give you three things I have them look at. The first is, under what conditions do you tend to be very reactive? Think of some examples where you rush off, you are quick off the uh, decision-making pad, and uh, you're defensive, uh, you are protective. Think of those. Where they are is a team. Now, I ultimately later say, now, individually, don't tell anybody, but think about where you are on that. What makes you reactive? Secondly, where does your ego get in the way? Where do you hear yourself saying, I want to be top dog. I'm going to beat those guys. We're going to be the winner in this. And all the kinds of things that are showing that you're comparing yourself and trying to position yourself in a place that you are seen as better than others. And you're smiling because we all have those kind of times, right, where we uh, – quickly try and get ourselves positioned when we get in a room. We go to a party and we make sure when we're asked what we do, we, we say exactly the right thing so people see us relative to others where we are. The third thing I ask them to think about is what really invites you to be purposeful, to see a purpose the other people have, not your purpose, but their purpose, so purposeful toward their aspirations toward their direction, toward their strategy. And what really gets you to remember that's what you want to do. Now, think back over the last year, and let's identify as a group where you've fallen into each of those three, and what is it that makes that possible? And we'll set some aims about how, where we know those places show up, we get in trouble, especially on reactive and ego. Uh, and now we're a smarter team because we're now collectively watching our behavior and the modes we fall into. And then I used to say at the end, now, I'd like to give everybody just a moment to look and do this exercise for yourself. We're not going to share what you come up with, but 
people sit there and, and they take it very seriously. And then the only question that I ask at the end is, what's the value of doing this kind of reflection? What does it do for you? And almost to the person, they'll say, I just felt myself become more open. I didn't even know I could do that. And it's because you didn't make me tell anybody what I did. Ask anybody else to give me feedback. I saw myself more clearly. And if I did that more often, I think I'd be a better leader, a better founder, a better owner. That is ubiquitously what people say after they do this. So that's how you unstick people. And you have to, there is a key here. You can't do this once. I work with companies three to eight years, and some I've worked with 25. Every CEO I've ever worked with, I'm still working with. And not because they're all paying me ongoingly, but because they're in my life. They read my books. If you look at the forwards, they're all written by these senior people, founders of companies like Ahmed uh, Rahim, who founded Rumi, uh, um, Numi T, uh, the chairman, CEO, and president of DuPont during the one period where they did some really great ecological things, uh, group vice president from Google. All these people that I've known uh, around the world are still with me. Now, the major, I mean, there are two reasons. One is they make more money any other way, 35 to 65% revenue growth a year, working the way I say. But they also say, this changed who I am. I found something that I had lost touch with when I got buried in the world of business. And I got buried in leading and uh, proving myself. And I forgot how it was to be a whole human being. Then change becomes easy. That is phenomenal, Carol. And you've touched upon this here and there in the conversation, almost even answered this question that I'm going to ask you, but I want to just hit it head on because some of what you're talking about has us understand better, if I can say it that way, understand better and be aware of the purpose and the drive of the other people. And in doing so, that changes how we operate because we're considering their effects. So it's not just who we are. It's not just that ego thing, but we're now aware of others and their effects. So I kind of want to focus and discuss that um, modus operandi and how we would how we would work more into that. You know what I'm saying? Let's. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, all right. So I need to give you another framework. And you may by now notice that I work with frameworks, not models. Models have answers in them that someone else has defined, and they become standardized and uh, ubiquitous. Frameworks come much more out of Pythagoras' work. Um, and what he said was, you can decide how complexly you want to think and how completely, and you can take on a certain number of terms. Like if you want to decide what's good and bad, you only need two terms, what works, what doesn't work, what's good, what's bad, right, wrong. And you will have a very, very limited view of the world. You can think about three terms. And now what you're doing is you're not just comparing two things, but you're beginning to look at what lifts things up higher sometimes. So the framework I'm going to give you right now is three terms. And I call it the three 
core human capacities, which have to be developed. And we do not develop them in families, in schools, in work. The first of those uh, three legs, I, I draw it on paper usually by drawing my triangle in the air. On one side is locus of control. We uh, we all know that when we're around people who take responsibility for their action and the effects of those, we're so uncomfortable with them. They're not blaming people. They're not a victim. And they seem to have more ability to operate in the world because even if only their own reaction. They say, no, I'm watching me. I'm reacting to this in a way I shouldn't be. Keep going. I'll catch up with you, right? That's internal locus control. External people, we hate to be around. They constantly are victims. I, I didn't do that. That wasn't my fault. Didn't happen on my shift. Uh, he did that. He made me, right? And they learned that from kids. Um, that that kind of control is really placing every the the outcomes and the hopes for everything outside of us. Now, um, the second part I'm going to talk about on this starts to speak to your question, so you don't think I'm going crazy here. Uh, on the bottom of that triangle is the uh, uh, human capacity of external considering, and I always talk about my grandmother loved to catch me being inconsiderate. You know what I mean when your grandmother or your parents caught you being inconsiderate? Now you tell him you're sorry, right? Or you say thank you. And they tried very hard to teach that to us. And sometimes it stuck and sometimes it didn't. Because on the, uh, I call that external considering, where you consider the effects in the world of everything you create. And you begin to be able to see others and what they're doing and what that creates. And you watch and you learn for yourself. Now, there's the internal considering where it's all about me. And if something happens in my company, my first question is, how will that affect me? Uh, if um, you come home from work and you're with your family and something went wrong and what you find is your spouse or partner saying to themselves, oh, no, I think I'm going to be in trouble here, when what they can see is their spouse is in distress, very upset, and they don't go comfort them. They start to try and protect themselves. You can see them moving back and forth between external considering and internal. When I work with a company, one of the major things I teach them is to stop measuring anything on your own internal uh, performance. Measure only your work by the external performance of those you seek to benefit. So, for example, in DuPont Corporation, I worked with uh, their terrible problems with airbags some years ago where small people were being killed by them. And uh, DuPont was manufacturing some of those. Um, and we brought together the six major automobile makers at that time and said, uh, let's understand what's actually happening. And we brought in people whose lives were impacted in this and had on the stage and had people interviewing that were journalists and telling their story. And we have sitting in the auditorium, CEOs, uh, COOs, heads of operations, uh, purchasing agents. And what we wanted them to do is feel the impact of the work we were out to do. 
uh, to really know what, so they weren't numbers on a page, which is what we were being given X number. Well, only 1% die. Somebody's got to die. Well, we wanted to get that out of the thinking. We then set up a set of measures where we had people look at how would you measure what we normally call externalities and find out what the core thing is that's causing this problem. By the way, we also had the dashboard makers, the electronics makers, and after um, a significant uh, two- or three-day event, we determined that one of the major problems we had was electrical, which was connecting so many things in the airbag deployment and the connection to uh, the ignition uh, and uh, wheel alignment. I mean, they were all connected. And DuPont said, and this was a, a beautiful external considering, we are going to take full responsibility as the one who has the most forefront visible, the airbag itself. And we are going to be responsible for solving all of this, no matter what it costs us. Now, they said to, to all the people who worked at DuPont, and then they became partners with the electronics group, with each of the other automobile makers, because getting so you measured the effects in the world you were seeking to benefit was what true external considering was. And I teach people a lot about where to measure in the value-adding process so that you aren't measuring back where your uh, fiber output and how much waste you've got. Who cares, right? Well, we care. Well, what we care about is it turns out also that the web that made up that fiber of that airbag was breaking uh, in a way because of the adsorption, the lining up of fibers, which no one had ever studied. But when they had to study not the output of the runs of number of airbags and sheets and fiber used and costs, instead measured how the effect was going to be of an airbag withholding any harm from anyone in that front seat. We had people way back upstream knowing that they were responsible for the life or death of a child or a small woman, no matter what they did along the stream. DuPont, after that, declared, this is with DuPont Canada, uh, declared that what they wanted to do was create a public, transparent uh, process of how they were calculating with all their other uh, competitors and suppliers to be responsible and would pay without having to be sued if they didn't solve the problem. Now, that's an extreme version of external considering. But if you don't get people in the mindset of the effects, it's very, very hard to change what it is you want to work on. Don't you love that story? <laughs> I love that story. And you know, there's so much more I would love to talk about. I want to pick uh, pick apart your new book a little bit more, but we're just about out of time. So I'm going to ask you, check out Indirect Work. That's the name of Carol Sanford's latest best-selling book. It's called Indirect Work. And you should be able to find out wherever books are sold. And again, you can go to carolsanford.com. We spoke about 
Let's get smarter with Carol Sanford. We talked about how to get smarter and there's so much more, but there's some really good nuggets and gems and some very good information here in this interview. Definitely going to help us all with our business. And of course, the book, I think, is is so important. It's, it's groundbreaking, game-changing. Can I say it that way? Because you hear that a lot. Hey, this book is ground-changing, but this one, this one really changes. Uh, this is a paradigm shift-changing book. I really love it. <laughs> You know what I say? I say, and this is true, it has the longest track record in history of a change that works and sticks, which most changes don't. They're a little blip because it draws on indigenous wisdom from uh, millennia. It draws on wisdom teachers that come out of many different threads and schools, and it works now and draws on quantum mechanics and quantum science. And so I don't, we didn't talk about much about that, but the source of this makes it an ancient book, as well as now trying to bring it up to date on the 21st century way of incorporating it into a business. Thank you. Hey, thanks for hanging out with me while I featured an elite entrepreneur who took her vision to reality. We discussed Let's Get Smarter with Carol Sanford. We talked about her childhood and how she realized that there was something there. She realized this essence of being smarter, of thinking out of the box, of changing and, and so much. And, and she went on and made an incredible career out of it. Six best-selling books. That says a lot. We talked about so many things. We talked about intelligence. What does it really mean to be or to get smarter? We talked about how to develop ourselves, our consciousness for that change to be smarter. We talked about some strategies on how we, how and what we can do in our organization and how we can think about others and the effect it's going to have on others and the effect of their, their purpose and what they do and how that changes and how that impacts on us. We talked about so many important things. What resonated with you? Tell tell me and tell me what your story is. And also, please remember supporting this show with a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And you can access Apple Podcasts from any web or mobile device. Please try and leave a kind review. And also, very important, please share this with a few friends to help them. Show them that you care and spread the word. This is some really important stuff. All right. Use this and let's help you move on your journey to success. Thanks and remember... Just take action. Success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. Sow good seeds, do good deeds, and join me on the next episode of The Tony D'Urso Show. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of the Tony D'Urso Show with his key influencers. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel.